Welcome to the Green Urbanist Podcast. I'm Ralph. This podcast is all about how we can design and manage cities to reduce our carbon emissions, adapt to the climate emergency, and live happier, healthier lives. Today's episode is a conversation with Conrad Richardson. Conrad is a mobility and climate activist with an international academic and professional background in urban and transport planning, engineering, and design across Africa, Asia, Europe, North America, and the Middle East. His experiences span the transport spectrum. He has worked on traditional infrastructure projects, such as bus rapid transit, BRT projects in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, as well as on cutting edge projects like the RTA Big Data Platform project in Dubai. He also lectures in universities on a wide variety of transport engineering and future of mobility topics. Conrad travels far and frequently, increasingly off the beaten track, shooting photographs and creating short videos telling the stories of different places, which he shares on his Instagram account. I would definitely recommend checking that out. Just search for his name. He's been to over 70 countries and has a real gift for visual storytelling. I've known Conrad for many years. We studied planning and geography together at University College Dublin. Since then, he's gone on to have some amazing adventures and experiences, which he's sharing with us today. Now, this episode is quite long at 80 minutes, but it is packed full of gold. (laughs) Amongst other things, we talk about why skateboarders make good urbanists, how getting involved in student politics led to Conrad attending the United Nations Climate Conference in Warsaw, the magic of bus rapid transit systems, what it means to be a truly smart city, and urban technological innovation in the developing world. He shares his lessons learned from working in Vietnam, Ethiopia, and United Arab Emirates. And I share some of my experiences from working in Nigeria. There are definitely lots of life lessons here, as well as interesting case studies and insightful concepts. Just a note, I'm very aware that in this episode, we are two white Europeans talking about the problems of cities on other continents. But I think it's clear from our conversation that we don't believe we have all the answers. And in fact, we do talk about the dangers of foreign consultants being parachuted into the developing world and not really understanding the local context. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter, and make sure to follow Conrad on Instagram and LinkedIn. Hi, Conrad. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on. How are you? Yeah, I am well. Hello, Ross. Um, Thank you for the the warm introduction. I'm I'm glad this podcast um, has served as a catalyst to put us back in touch. It's been a while since UCD, I think, it's been eight years since we were last in the same classroom. And I have to say, I love your initiative. As far as I know, there's very few podcasts out there on green urbanism, yet it's a very important topic that affects what 54% of the global population. Um, because as of now, the UN population is, or the, the urban population is about 54% around the world. Um, so yeah, I really hope your podcast can can help convert more people to think like green urbanists because it really affects um, a huge percentage of us. I also hope our conversation can be motivational for both urbanism and non-urbanism enthusiasts and can shed some light on some of the work being done in certain corners of the world that get a little less attention. And just on my end, I'm always looking for ways to, to continue growing the green urbanism community. And I like shaping the narrative that surrounds green urbanism. And I've been doing this through photography, videography, blogging, and uh, as of right now, podcasts. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I I totally agree. I think, I mean, I kind of started this podcast because it was the podcast that I wanted to listen to. 
but nobody else was making. So <laughs> I'm just kind of scratching my own itch with it. And uh, I'm glad to see people are, are enjoying it and are learning from it as well. So you've got a very interesting backstory. And despite the fact that we've known each other for a few years, there's actually a lot about uh, you that I don't know. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, and what, what made you want to become an urbanist? Yeah, sure. No, that's a great question. Um, I think it's best I go right back to 1992, long before meeting <laughs> you. So I'm genetically Irish, but I was born in the French countryside in a small 400 people village. Uh, the village is called uh, Brévillemont. <laughs> it's in Normandy. And I spent much of my childhood playing in nature and building cities and settlements out of Lego, and then later on in SimCity. But then in the early 2000s, I was uprooted to what was the big city for me. Basically, my dad was being expatriated to Hamburg in Germany. And there I went to an international school and I found myself exposed to students from, I think it was over 50 other countries, hence my confusing accent and uh, perhaps also my global curiosity. And yeah, in school at best, I was a very average student, but I always excelled at, at geography. And I have to say this move to Germany took place in my early teens. And these are generally quite formative years. And yeah. With this move, I experienced the juxtaposition between rural and urban life. And I think both lifestyles offer many benefits, but through this and from a young age, I became acutely aware of the impact humans have on the built environment. And by built environment, I mean, I suppose the world without humans is the environment. And then we humans came along and we built on it. And that's pretty much what makes up the built environment and everything humans have built on this environment is the outcome of a vision and a decision. And these all have long lasting legacies. But uh, yeah, this awareness for the built environment was, I think, unintentionally developed through my many interests, uh, including street skateboarding and later street photography. And that was uh, enabled by the great German public transport. And so in my teens, I spent much of my weekends and after school hours traveling to all corners of Hamburg. Um, I think you mentioned before we jumped on the call that you too had uh, an interest in street skateboarding and urban photography. I think that's super interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting. Me and you have quite similar uh, backstories, but in very different locations in a way. So I grew up in the countryside as well, in uh, the west of Ireland. Um, and I was also uh, a skateboarder in my teen years. And I think that was my first... Um, you could call it ways of seeing. We all see the, our environment in different ways, depending on our role within them. So as a skateboarder, you're always looking at the urban environment in terms of how you can use it with, with your skateboard, the kind of lines you can take, uh, you know, how you can interact with it in that way. I think um, I've heard people who practice parkour say something similar. So they have a slightly, they have the, they call it parkour vision. And and then from there, I mean, I, I got obsessed with photography in my late teens. Um, and again, that was another way. Then it switched to being you're viewing through a, through a, literally through a lens, <laughs> um, physically and metaphorically. And you're, you know, you're sort of in, then you're sort of an observer in the environment uh, and you sort of take yourself out of it and you can sort of observe it more objectively, which I think is very interesting. 
Um, and then, of course, we both became urbanists and we, we started analyzing it in a way that is is different again. Um, so I think this is a really key point that, I mean, we sort of think, we think of seeing one of our senses as being totally objective, but actually we all see the world in a different way. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, you have to understand other people's perspectives and uh, other people's backgrounds and why they see the world in a different way. And, and they're all equally valid, you know. Um, I think that's a really, really important point. No, that's great. Um, and I also attribute so much to skateboarding. It's like you, an activity that really got me interacting with the built environment, took me to all, scorners, all corners of Hamburg city. It's, it's really a form of urban exploration. I was always looking for street spots, different monuments. I was going to schools, museums, different industrial areas that you would never go to otherwise in oh, search yeah, for like stairs, handrails, little banks. And yeah, through that, I started to appreciate some of the finer details and the different materials that are used that make up our built environment. And also, I think quite importantly, I, I was also exposed to all walks of life. I was skating with kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and some from advantaged backgrounds and also all different age groups. And it really opened the world up to me. Um, and we all shared this common activity, which uh, is often and still to some extent frowned upon. But honestly, yeah. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for it. And then let's if I skip ahead a couple of years, I then graduated secondary school in Germany and I went to Ireland to pursue the same um, degree as you in geography, planning, environmental policy. Uh, and the acronym for that was GPEP. I have to say at the onset in first year when I arrived, I did feel a bit lost. I almost switched out to architecture. Um, my thinking at the time was, what can I study that will enable me to have the greatest possible impact, or at least least negative impact of humanity on our planet? And I, I was looking at architecture and I was like, hmm, maybe I can build a house and impact the life of a family or you know, create it and design a building or an office space, and that can influence the lives of four, maybe 400 people. And that still felt too granular. So I, I started to look at planning in this sense, and I realized that through planning, you can really influence part of a city and the lives of maybe 100,000 people um, through a, a specific master plan in part of a city. And then later on, I discovered transport, and I think we'll get to that. And through transport, especially if you're building uh, high-capacity public transport systems, like a metro system or a bus rapid transit system, you can influence the lives of millions on a daily basis. Um, but yeah, our course, the GPEP course, I think was a great foundation. Um, and just the, the topic itself is fascinating because urban planning, it really interfaces with so many other disciplines, um, with sociology, economics, transport engineering, maybe civil engineering, psychology, international development, environmental science. I mean, you name it, urban planning can touch on all of these different things. And I think we'll explore a lot of these different ideas um, through uh, some of the later questions. And uh, yeah, after first year, I decided that I would devote my career to, to contributing to healthy urbanization. That's, that's fantastic. I think that's a really like um, noble way of looking at a profession and i think it's 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 unsurprising to me in a way because i guess uh, me and you i guess are um you would call us millennials even though i don't like to use generational terms i think they're a bit of a, a blunt instrument but um we grew up very much in the time of climate change 
I mean, it was really all through our childhood and our formative years. It was, uh, it was something that was acknowledged and that was understood. And so sustainability concepts were very um, uh, on the forefront and in the public public mind. Uh, and I remember, like, as a kid, like, walking around the house, turning off the lights after my parents, being like, stop wasting electricity, you know? <laughs> um, so I think that's, uh, I think that's probably something people can empathize with, is this feeling of, right, what, I'm, I'm only one person, what can I do? And what's the most impact that I can have? And it's a great way of thinking about your career. Uh, you have to be careful not to get overwhelmed by the challenge. And that's something that I've struggled with. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, I, I was also the same. I wanted to, yes, learn about that subject area, but also be proactive and have a change. Um, I think that leads me to a funny story from uh, my time in UCD. And just as a, as a note for the listeners, um, especially the non-Irish listeners, UCD is the, the university and it's a huge campus. It's like a, a small city. You could live there and never leave. Um, I, I pretty much did that my, my first year, but, um, I was, I was out one night with some friends and this was in first year. I was still a fairly naive student and someone mentioned to me that the student union elections were coming up and this was basically the, the government body of, uh, of UCD. And they said, Hey, there's this position, um, to be environmental officer and sort of represent the voice of the, the UCD students. And uh, well, UCD, I think, had 24,000 students at the time. So it's, it's like a, a small, small town or medium sized yeah. town. Um, and I, you know, we were on a night out and I was like, oh, that sounds fun. I should probably think about that. So I made a note in my phone. Next day I woke up and I checked my phone and I was like, oh, yeah, that, you know, I should probably just look into this. Why not? Um, let's let's do something that'll make me very uncomfortable and uh, explore this opportunity. So I went to the student union, I got the form, they said, okay, come back with 100 signatures. And I did exactly that came back with 100 signatures. And I thought, okay, great, I have the position now. Um, this will be, you know, an interesting opportunity. And then they said, thanks. Now you'll just have to run an entire campaign. And um, try to get yourself elected. I was like, what? No, I, I can't do this. this. That sounds scary. Um, so yeah, in, the, in the, the weeks that ensued, I had to make posters. I had to go around lecture halls, giving lectures. I had to basically convince as many students as possible from this large student population to vote for me and not the other candidates. And by some stroke of luck, uh, a friend, um, called Stephen, Stephen Stokes. He came to my rescue. He'd been a, a campaign manager for a number of different uh, local politicians. So he had a lot of experience and he said, okay, I will work with you and be your campaign manager. And uh, without him, I would have gotten nowhere. So I'm extremely grateful for him. He later became the mayor of Greystones and has done very many interesting things. So I'm, I'm extremely wow. grateful for him. But anyway, I eventually won the election um, and I did feel like a bit of an, an imposter. I was, I knew environmental science, um, and I'd studied environmentalism to, to various degrees, but I was quite ill-equipped when it came to running campaigns and organizing events. Um, but, uh, that was a, a very interesting experience that I think has shaped many experiences to come. 
um, because I, you know, I was in and out of our little student newspapers. I had to go on the student radio um, on one occasion. And this, I was mortified at the time, but I invited the mayor of Dublin to give a talk on Dublin bikes. So the bike sharing scheme in Dublin. And I booked an entire lecture hall for 200 people. And last minute, we had to change the dates, but all the marketing had been for a different date and there were posters all around campus. So I had to quickly send out a message on Facebook or whatever platforms, Twitter, I think I was using as well. And only about 12 people showed up in this 200 people lecture hall oh my with the mayor of Dublin. Um, <laughs> so I was slightly humiliated, but he was super cool about it. And we all just sat at the front and had a really engaging discussion. Um, and he talked to each and every one of us. Um, but yeah, that experience taught me that, you know, throw yourself in the deep end and uh, try to figure things out. After UCD, I did go on exchange to McGill University in Montreal in Canada. So I went away for a year and that was an amazing city. It's like a fusion of Paris and New York, the big mountain in the middle. And that was also quite a formative experience. And I just wanted to bring that up because that's where I started a, a photography project of mine. And just because you were mentioning or talking about photography, I, I, on the 1st of January, 2013, I set out to take a photograph every single day for 365 days. And that forced me to go out rain or shine. And well, mostly ice and snow for the first couple of months because I was in, in Canada. Yeah. But yeah, this, this project um, sent me out on a daily mission to capture the essence of the city that I was in. And yes, this happened mostly in Montreal, uh, but also all around Europe and into Ireland because I returned to Ireland for my final year and, and took photographs. I had my camera absolutely everywhere I went and I was constantly taking photographs. When you're actively taking photographs and you have your camera in your hand, you're walking around somewhere. You really experience it in a different way because now you're just you're just looking with that photographer's eye framing things you're looking at details how people are moving around that kind of thing so it's it's a great thing to do it's a great tool for urbanists um i think probably the only other uh or maybe a probably a, a slightly better way of doing it but a bit more um maybe difficult to break into is drawing hand sketching if you can sit down somewhere and sketch a street or, or a landmark or something that teaches you so much uh it's definitely something i haven't i i avoided a bit in in university because i was not naturally gifted but even if you just draw and don't show it to anyone because <laughs> you think it's rubbish it still will teach you so much yeah so well for me this project sort of accelerated my my knowledge of how to use a camera and how to tell a story around a picture and also how to interact with a an audience because I had a, a Facebook page at the time and that did relatively well, um, at least for me. And some of the photographs won uh, different awards. Um, I was the, the university homepage for the Canadian university I was at for a while, which made me very happy. But the photography itself is something I never gave up afterwards. And now I have a huge database of photographs of urbanism, best practice and worst practice all around the world. And I use that very frequently on all the different projects I've ever worked on since. Um, That's great. But yeah, after that, I went back to UCD and just to wrap up my environmentalism um, or my, my political position, uh, <laughs> I returned to UCD and I was still involved in a lot of environmental uh, related activities. I created the UCD Environmental Society, 
And things just kept snowballing and it led me to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC. Um, I think it was COP19 in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, that was the year before the big climate conference in Paris that I think a lot of people might have heard of. That's, that's in in incredible. What was that like, um, being able to sit in on these big discussions? That was very interesting. Um, I was there as a civil society representative for Ireland, and it was fascinating to see all the leaders of the world come together, discuss this extremely important topic, and communicate these well-articulated um, messages about what we need to do, and then leaving and seeing very little being done. Um, so, you know, I looked up to the UN and I was like, it's amazing we have this cooperation at a, at a global level between, I think, 193 countries. Um, but there's such a, a disconnect between the high-level work they do and what's often happening on the ground. Um, so it was quite sobering. Just thinking back on, on what you've been talking about, there's sort of a life lesson there about if you're interested in something, just make a commitment and then you'll learn how to do it. I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing with this podcast. I mean, I'm not really an expert in anything and I'm not really, a, I'm not a professional podcaster at all, but I've just decided that I'll learn. Uh, I, by, by the time I'm finished, maybe like a hundred episodes, I might be an expert on, <laughs> on something, you know, but I wouldn't get there if I didn't do it. So exactly. Uh, if there's anything you're interested in, just, just find a way of committing to it and holding yourself accountable and you'll just figure it out as you go. Maybe not brain surgery. There's some things you have to train for, but yeah, and I think that's that's sort of well through my story, I've I've been spoilt with experiences, and the reason for that was was being proactive early on, running for this position quite naively to be environmental officer, and then this has snowballed into so many incredible experiences. It's helped me meet many individuals, for which I'm extremely grateful. Um, and for me, that's been a very important life lesson. Be proactive, step out of your comfort zone, because any small initiative can have a huge impact. And yeah, your podcast, uh, that is a platform that can elevate you in ways you cannot yet imagine. Um, and I find that extremely exciting. And yeah, again, naively getting involved in student politics, two years down the line, led me to brush shoulders with the likes of Ban Ki-moon, um, who was the, the eighth UN Secretary General, basically the president of the world. Um, and yeah, that's the, the story behind my bachelor. What, what, so what happened to you after UCD? I think at that point, me and you kind of lost contact a little bit, although keeping up on social media. Um, so why don't you tell us what happened after you graduated? So after UCD, um, post meeting you, Ross, I, if I remember correctly, I found a job for a sustainable transport company in Holland. And the plan was to join them, save some money, and then do a master's. And a few weeks before joining, I received a 50% scholarship to go to University College London, to the Bartlett School of Planning in London, to study transport and city planning. Um, so a course that had more transport focus than I'd previously had. And I think the same week I got the scholarship, a good friend of mine let me stay in his uh, apartment in, in Chelsea. <laughs> in, I don't know if you've heard of it, but in Cadogan Square, in Sloan Square, it's quite a renowned part of London. Oh yeah. It's uh, the most, I think at the time anyway, it was the most expensive square meter of real estate in the UK or in Europe. And he let me stay there for free of charge. 
So this is a friend, Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. I might never have done a master's otherwise. Um, but I have to mention this was a 1970s apartment that hadn't been touched since the 1970s. So it did need a lot of work. And, uh, but I have to say the old feel of the apartment definitely complemented my academic writing. Um, so yes, I was living in at this very prestigious place as a broke student and I spent my mornings and evenings cycling past, uh, big Bentleys. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I thankfully managed to do my master's sooner than later because these things sometimes never happen once you join the professional world. And this master's um, got me to dive much deeper in, in transport. And the key themes were transport in emerging cities. So cities in, I don't know what the correct terminology is, but in the global south. Um, so Africa, Southeast Asia, South America. It touched a lot on sustainable urbanism and also public transport and mega infrastructure planning. So how to create big infrastructures. And while I was doing that, I fell in love with bus rapid transit, um, which is BRT. I don't know. Are you familiar with BRT? Yeah. I mean, I've, I haven't been directly involved with any, but it's, it seems to be a very popular, um, a very popular sort of wave bringing in a sort of high capacity transport system without investing in, in tram lines or underground routes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's no precise definition as to what a BRT is. Because there exists like a lot of variances in design and operational objectives and in levels of sophistication but it's basically uh, a bus-based mass transit system that emulates the performance and characteristics of like a tram or a metro but at a fraction of the cost so the typical components are exclusive right-of-way lanes so the buses don't operate in mixed traffic, so they're not affected by congestion. They have stations that are closed and comfortable, and their platforms are normally raised at level with buses, and they have ticketing gates, so there's no queues of people paying, putting like coins into a machine. So it's a very efficient service, and these are often well integrated with uh, other forms of public transport, whether that's a feeder service linking to the bus rapid transit or to another metro style system. And yes, you can build this at a much lower cost. And because it's cheaper, you can build a much larger network. So it's a, a great solution for cities who don't have much money, but who are urbanizing very rapidly and want to bring a bit of organization to um, their, their urban area. And this is something I, I became completely obsessed with. Just it was such a great solution that can solve so many problems. And so for my master's dissertation, I wanted to find a way to merge this interest in BRT with uh, technology, with international development and sustainability. And I kind of wanted a holiday, to be honest. <laughs> so at the time, I'd been put in touch with a company called ITP, um, thanks to a good friend of mine um, called James. Thank you, James. And they are a UK consultancy doing very interesting sustainable transport and international development work in emerging cities. And they offered to, to give me some guidance. They sent me some reports on Karachi in Pakistan, in Lagos, and in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And I Googled each and immediately I fell in love with Ho Chi Minh City. It just looked like such an exciting city. So I 
I went to Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam for 40 days. And just a, a little note on Ho Chi Minh, it's often called the motorcycle capital of the world, where 90% of the vehicle fleet is motorbikes. And they sort of move around the city like shoals of fish. It's, it's fascinating. And my research was centered around finding novel ways to integrate the proposed BRT with the local motorcycle-dominated culture. So my proposal was essentially to create an on-demand motorcycle sharing service, a lot like Ubermoto. Um, this was before Ubermoto existed. And to find ways to integrate the service with station designs. And at the time, and still now, it's near impossible to walk in Ho Chi Minh City. So to create a bus rapid transit system with stations, if people can't walk and access these stations comfortably, they're not going to use the service. Your car doors and your buses might be great, but if people can't get to the stations, that's a big problem. You won't get the ridership and then you won't be able to recuperate your costs. And so investing in this is not, not a sound investment. So I was looking for ways to better integrate the service by using technology and the existing um, motorcycle taxi services that were on the ground. So when you walk around Ho Chi Minh, at least back in 2015 when I was there, there's guys who sit on the street corners on their motorbikes and they offer you to they offer to drive you places, but you often get ripped off. You have to negotiate a price. There's no safety standards. And I wanted to create a digital platform that would create more accountability and integrate that with the BRT. I'll be honest, it's a bit far-fetched, <laughs> the whole <laughs> dissertation topic. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's such a terrible idea because cities with unique DNAs, like Ho Chi Minh with all the motorbikes, require novel solutions. And now in 2020, Grab Bike, which is the Asian version of Uber, has been extremely successful in Ho Chi Minh City. And they did not integrate with the BRT corridor that it was eventually built. My research was uh, working off plans. There hadn't been any construction. But since the BRT was deployed and it was a failure, and I'm, I'm honestly not surprised because it was very hard to access the, the stations. Yeah, this, this, this is a really important point, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you can't just uh, sort of drop in an infrastructure. You know, sort of, you can, looking at a city in plan view, at a sort of strategic level, you could sort of drop in a network and it can sort of make sense at that scale. But then actually when you look down, when you have eyes on the street and you actually understand what the environment is like and what the connections are like and the kind of roads you have to cross, I mean, it becomes almost impossible to convince people to walk from their their uh, apartment or their house to a bus if they have to like, I mean, I'm sure some of the road infrastructure in, in, in Ho Chi Minh City is like, a death trap to try and cross as a pedestrian because it's so uh, <laughs> high paced and there's so little um, facilities. Just to jump in on that topic, it's surprisingly easy to cross the road because there's so many motorbikes and they can sort of open up again, like a shoal of fish. Uh, so okay. you, if you're crossing the road in, in most big cities in Vietnam, you just have to step out and walk and do not stop. <laughs> if you stop, you're putting your life in danger and someone on a motorbike's life in danger. So it, it actually works pretty well. I'm sure there are accidents uh, if, say, a driver or someone crossing is not paying proper attention, but you just walk out. But now, as Vietnam becomes a more affluent country, 
people do aspire to owning a car and the more cars that enter this uh, transport mobility ecosystem, the more dangerous it's going to be to cross because cars are nowhere near as flexible and people are sitting behind windshields. They're not as connected with the world as someone who's in the fresh air on his motorbike. Was there anything else you want to uh, mention about your master's degree or you want to jump in and tell us about your professional experience? I'll come back to how this research influenced some of my later decisions. And uh, yeah, let me summarize my professional experience in, in short form, and then we can deep dive into any of these topics later on. So after UCL, I joined a company called PTV Group. This is uh, an industry-leading transport modeling and simulation software solution developer. Uh, basically, it's a company that develops modeling tools that cities use to test and appraise planning and engineering decisions. Things were going very well with PTV, um, but after two and a half years, I found something that was BRT related and very hands-on when it comes to developing a project. And this is experience I thought would be very important to gain early on. Um, so I resigned from what was a great job and I moved to Ethiopia, as you do. <laughs> so Natural progression. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a lot of people were a bit confused about my decision and I became a transport planning intern uh, for a nonprofit called ITDP. It's the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. They do incredible work all around the world. Making this career shift uh, cost me a lot of money. I spent most of my personal savings um, doing this internship for six months. But in the end, it has turned out to be a very good investment. But anyway, I was working on two UN Habitat projects. We can go into more detail on those later on. And one of them was a bus rapid transit system. And after seven months, this sadly came to an end. And I found a job for a young consultancy in Dubai. And I was working across the MENA region, so the Middle East and North Africa as an ITS and transportation engineer. So again, I got thrown into the deep end. I had to learn the ins and outs of ITS engineering. ITS stands for Intelligent Transport Systems. So that's basically the, the technology that sits on top of all our infrastructure, whether that's uh, like your real-time passenger information boards that you see when you use uh, a tram system, or maybe the traffic lights use some sort of uh, on-demand um, adaptation technology to make sure vehicles flow smoothly through intersections. Um, so through this company, I worked on a lot of cutting-edge smart mobility projects, and I can go into more detail again later on. Um, and during this time, I also took a six-month sabbatical to co-found a company in Switzerland in an unrelated industry. But uh, I think I'll keep that as a story for the kids and uh, not for this podcast episode. But anyway, after that sabbatical, I returned to Dubai and I've been there or I was there until COVID. COVID sort of put a stick in the wheel and everything came to a sudden stop after what can be best described as 10 years of progressive chaos. I was in the Philippines when the lockdown, the global lockdown really kicked in. Um, that 
is also another story that... <laughs> on a deserted island, I, I think I remember it. Yeah, I was living in a tent on a deserted island for a while. Um, and eventually I made it to an international airport where I had to pitch my tent for a few nights until I found the very last flight out. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. So you have a, a great Instagram account, which is um, conrad.richardson, um, under the sort of name uh, Urban Dialectic. Yeah. Uh, which is sort of, uh, it's it's sort of like travel for urbanists. Uh, that's how, sort of how I see it. <laughs> and you've, you've been to many different countries. We talked about the Philippines a little bit there. So can you tell us a bit about that? What's your sort of experience been traveling? I'm not sure how exactly to articulate this because this is something that comes from inside me. Um, I, I do it for myself. But yes, I love to travel. I travel far and frequently. I think some of the people who follow me on, on social media, on Instagram, they think I'm a full-time traveler and they know nothing about my career as a, as a green urbanist. So maybe I'll share this podcast episode with them and uh, shed some light on how I actually uh, finance my trips. Um, but yes, social media can be very deceptive. Yeah, I suppose schooling taught me a lot about the world and my parents were very avid travelers. So naturally, I was very curious about the world. And then once I had the skill set and the resources to travel and discover the world through my own eyes, I went for it, which, yes, I've been documenting through the lens of my camera and through my own lens as a, as a green urbanist. And to do that, I've sort of designed my life to enable me to travel. I, I think I've traveled to more than say 12 countries a year for the last four years, uh, which is one new country per month. And I obviously go home and revisit many countries. And I've, I've done that by living in key hubs. So I lived in London where I did my master's and my, had my first job, which is a great global hub. You can go to many parts of the world quite easily. Then I was in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. That is a great hub to get to all of East Africa. Then Dubai is in many ways, and excuse uh, <laughs> the arrogance, but the center of the world, at least if the Americas didn't exist. But geographically, you can access Asia, Europe, Africa in a couple hours. Right. So by living in these locations, I could, I had a reach. I could reach lots of different countries and cultures. And then in the back end, I'm extremely systematic. Uh, being a planner, I have lots of <laughs> systems in place to optimize how I use my annual leave and my public holidays. And in my various apartments, I've always had a drawer that's pre-packed with everything I need to throw in a bag that I can pick up at any moment and go travel. Um, and my style of travel is uh, I travel solo and on a very tight budget. Um, I think... I want to make that clear to, to have quantity and quality. You have to travel um, on a tight budget. And I think that's important because once you're on a tight budget, it really forces you to interact with locals and you can have a high quality experience. Um, so I do a lot of hitchhiking to get around. I cycle a lot when I'm in Europe to get from place to place, um, cycle and camp. I do a lot of couch surfing and I've minimized my costs. I think 
or most recently I created a, a video from my experience hitchhiking around northern Iraq in Iraqi Kurdistan and my five-day trip excluding flights cost me $54. Um, so if, I, <laughs> if you Google my name or YouTube my name, you can find these videos. Um, just to make it clear that you can travel on a very tight budget. Money is not the limiting factor. Um, it's, it's how you choose to travel that uh, determines how frequently and how far you can travel. Organization and a little bit of bravery, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, I think some of my most memorable trips, uh, I, with a couple friends, we crossed Central Asia, um, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan in a four by four. That was mental. Then I crossed, I think, four countries in, in like the southern East African part of Africa using only public transport. And uh, I've had lots of just funny hitchhiking experiences. Um, and I, I absolutely love this type of travel. And yes, through my camera, I do document as much as possible. Um, when I'm in cities, I like to document things that I consider to be good or best practice and things that are also worst practice. And I, I, I add this to my big photography database that I then try to use in my work uh, professionally, but also um, my work as, as uh, someone who's trying to communicate a certain message as to what our cities could or should look like. Is it, do you find it valuable to have that really wide experience base to draw on? Increasingly, yes. I, so when I was working in Ethiopia, um, and I think this builds on something you were saying earlier, it's not good just to parachute in infrastructures into foreign contexts because that doesn't work well. That clearly didn't work well in, in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. So I think it's extremely important to not fly in as a foreign consultant and tell them what to do and how to do it. So my approach and my photography has helped me with this is go and work with the local government, show them examples from lots of different countries, show them what worked, what doesn't work, and let them learn the lessons themselves. I think it's uh, sort of like this, this overused proverb of uh, give a man a fish and he can eat for a day and then teach a man to fish and he can eat for a lifetime. I think that applies in this sense as well. Absolutely. And also understanding that the solutions that have worked in uh, wealthy Western countries don't always apply um, to developing countries. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, maybe we can talk about that a bit more. I mean, I'd, I'd love to come back to um, your work in Ethiopia um and some of the lessons learned from doing that um yeah i would absolutely love to talk about ethiopia um people are fed up hearing me talk about it so to be asked <laughs> is great because um it was honestly such an eye-opening and incredible experience um ethiopia but also just the whole continent of africa it's incredible it really gets into your blood um and just to build on what you were saying on urbanization in uh, emerging cities so in Africa, much of the urbanization is yet to come. Between now and 2050, the African urban population is set to triple. And that presents a huge opportunity because it means that two thirds of the cities are not yet built. So it's still possible to get at least two thirds of the cities right. And that is definitely the case in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, where I was living. It's a booming city and they are faced with many challenges. 
and opportunities, but the decisions that are being made right now will have a long lasting legacy. So it's of utmost importance that they make the right decisions now. So they avoid perhaps building American style car based um, cities and parts of cities because that could create a lot of environmental, social, economic problems further down the line. And uh, I'm very fortunate and very proud to have worked on two very interesting projects that uh, were geared towards making sure that that doesn't happen. So in Ethiopia, I mentioned earlier that I was working on two UN Habitat funded projects. One of them was the bus rapid transit. So I developed with ITDP the BRT design framework, and this was essentially a document to ensure the successful deployment of the first seven BRT systems, um, which are going to be implemented across uh, various corridors throughout the city. And again, BRT is a great infrastructure for connecting people to jobs, but also for discouraging sprawl, because if people have an alternative to the private car, um, and they use high capacity public transport, you will also encourage surrounding la land uses to become more dense. And so you will use less resources and you can populate, like have the same number of population in a smaller area. And that is inherently um, great in terms of sustainability. But basically this BRT design framework was to make sure that the implementation was uh, coherent and followed best practice because small mistakes when deploying infrastructures can be very costly. So for example, if you buy 80 buses for your BRT corridor, and you build your station platforms and the bus boarding height and the platform height is slightly different, then suddenly someone in a wheelchair um, can't enter, at least not independently, which is a very costly mistake. And it's, it's best to just avoid those at all costs. And that requires some sort of uh, oversight. Um, so that was one of the projects. And then the other project was the NMT strategy. NMT stands for non-motorized transport. So anything that's not private car um, or motorized transport. So things like walking and cycling. And this particular project involved creating um, urban planning and street design standards and regulations to sort of govern and guide future urban development and uh, street design. And the goal of this project was to design the city in a way that could or would make it possible for say a blind person or a person of determination in a wheelchair to get around the city safely, smoothly and independently. Um, and yeah, so the overarching goal was to create a much more inclusive city and to make non-motorized transport a dignified way to get around so people did not aspire so much to the car. And the current situation in Addis Ababa, or at least in 2017 when I was there, is footpaths with big open drains. The footpaths are also not level. Uh, there's a lot of cracks everywhere because they don't use good materials. A lot of uh, construction is happening everywhere in the city and the, the construction companies dump materials onto the footpath, which make it very hard to navigate on foot, let alone in a wheelchair. Um, there's also a lot of simple little things that are overlooked, like uh, having a lot of green infrastructure to provide shade. Then you'll also find a lot of street hawkers. 
So people working in the informal economy, selling um, magazines and fruits on the side of the road um, that take away from the pedestrian right of way. So walking is just unattractive, undignified, and in a country and a city that's booming, if people can afford a car, they will buy a car unless we provide them with very high quality infrastructure. So what we did is we created a set of standards and guidelines and we trained the local governments on how to use these. And essentially this should help them create much higher quality walking and cycling infrastructure and uh, create what we call as complete streets. And some of the elements of that are like smooth at grade crossings. So little ramps at street corners that allow you to, to cross a road without having to go down a step. Um, so again, if you're in a wheelchair, you don't want to have to like wheel yourself off a ledge. Uh, yeah. Also put enough crossings um, at intersections, but also uh, in the middle of uh, street blocks. We also looked at creating large enough pedestrian islands um, for multi-lane roads. So in the middle, you can find a safe refuge that is wide enough to say, have space for multiple bikes so they don't spill over into the street. Um, Cause that could be obviously very dangerous for the vehicle and the, the cyclist. We also look to introduce parking measures to ensure cars don't block the pedestrian right of way, brought in benches for people to sit on, looked at uh, different tree typologies that were well suited to the local climate, but also provided good shade and good foliage for during the rainy season. Um, Cause right now they were, at least in Addis, they were planting a lot of palm trees, which are, are not good in that sense. Um, and then also finding ways to integrate the street hawkers. A lot of uh, practice tries to do away with them, but unfortunately, and we have to be realistic. This is their livelihood. They need this job. So we looked at ways we could integrate street hawkers into the streetscape by designating spaces for them, um, which is uh, remains quite controversial in some cities around the world, uh, which is a bit, which is harsh. Um, but yeah, a lot of cities want to make themselves look nice but at the end of the day, we have to make our cities functional for everybody. Mm. So yeah, uh, non-motorized transport is something now very close to my heart because humans need to walk just as birds need to fly. And we also need to be around other people and we need beauty. And for that, we need high quality, complete streets. And not doing so will encourage people to take up private cars. And I'm not going to go into the theory of why car ownership is bad, but it has to be avoided all, at all costs because yes, cars are space hungry, they're dangerous, they pollute, they encourage sprawl. There's nothing sustainable about the private car. Um, even if your car is electric because of the land use implications a car will have. Uh, if everyone needs a parking space yeah. in town and then a parking space at home, we need so much more space to sustain a population. Actually, there's, there's a few key things that jump out of me there just just while i think of it on that uh parking uh point there's an article that i found recently um where someone did a study of all the parking uh all the car parks in the uk or in or in england uh and how much if you could give over a certain amount of those in key locations for housing how many houses could you build and it was like two hundred thousand houses on existing surface car parks so 
I mean, the the space is there in a lot of places. It's just that we're using it to park these kind of personal possessions, you know, that are like uh, we've convinced ourselves are necessary to the functioning of our cities and towns, but in actual fact, create a lot more problems than than they solve. Uh, and as you said, the land use implications are huge. It's a good short term solution to to build around the car, but in the long term, it has devastating impacts for everybody, including car drivers. Yeah, yeah. And just just come back on what on two things that jumped out of me were the fact that transport infrastructure should be facilitative rather than reactive. Um, you've got these growing cities, and if you can get in now and 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 provide the infrastructure with a view to the future, then then you're having a positive impact on how that uh, urban area will develop in time. Um, so often one of the problems in, in the UK, and I'm sure in other countries, is when uh, a city wants to provide a, a transport, a sustainable transport infrastructure, and they say, but the, the ridership just isn't there. There isn't enough people to use it because the population is kind of dispersed, it's kind of low density. Uh, and in that sense, the, they're looking at it in a reactive sense and 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 it may be true that in certain situations, you know, the scope isn't there to actually densify the city. But if you can get in where you know the population will be growing and you know land will be developed over the coming decades, then you can have a huge positive impact on on the on that urban area becoming more sustainable and developing more sustainably over time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's huge. And also about um, getting the basics right. So walking is the oldest form of transport. Um, every city has to be walkable and it has to be an option. And even in cities uh, where it's, uh, as you say, it's not provided for, you will still see people out of necessity walking because if they don't own a car, they can't afford a a bus or a motorcycle, they're going to walk and you're just making their life miserable, basically. There's also a nice, famous and uh, very overused quote by uh, Enrique Peñalosa, um, who was uh, the mayor of Bogota in Colombia, and I think later on the president. Um, and he always said, an advanced city is not a place where the poor move about in cars, rather it's where the rich use public transportation. And in Ethiopia or Addis Ababa, they can achieve that public transport element um, with the BRT, but the rich and all of society to use this public transportation, they need to be able to access it via high quality walking and cycling infrastructure. So that's part of the equation that still gets overlooked in in many parts of the world. And uh, it's a huge shame. It's a huge missed opportunity because it's it's a requirement for uh, achieving high ridership uh, on public transport. Yeah, but Bogota is a great case study in this, in looking at the psychology of public transport and making it attractive and actually making it um, uh, sort of changing in, in the psychology of the residents that um, taking a bus is higher status than taking a car. You worked in West Africa, if I understand it correctly, in Nigeria. How was that? Yeah, in my in my previous job, I worked at a big uh, international consultancy. And we were hired as a consultant team to support, uh, well, on, on two projects in Nigeria, but one in particular that I'll, I'll talk about. Uh, for a city called Ibadan. It's kind of the second city uh, of Nigeria after Lagos, uh, which is the capital. We were, uh, basically the city had um, had terrible flooding 
um, a few years previously, the World Bank came in and sort of assessed the situation and said, what you need is a, uh, a plan for the city. They called it a master plan. I guess it's in the UK is what we would call a local plan. It's that sort of strategic planning framework, which they didn't have. Uh, and he said, you need this and you also need um, a flooding plan, plan for flooding and for drainage. Um, so we were we were hired. I was on the consultant team that was looking at developing this master plan for Ibadan City. And one of the most fascinating things about it is that, I mean, in, in, in sort of Europe, we just have this wealth of information and statistics at our fingertips. And that's what it allows us to, to make, you know, hopefully the right decisions around population growth, where housing is needed, all these kind of things. In the developing world, often that information is just missing mm-hmm. or it's just totally unreliable. So if you Google uh, Ibadan, it will... Google will tell you, based on the last census that was conducted in Nigeria, that uh, there's two and a half million people there. We sort of looked at this at the beginning of the project, and we sort of looked at the scale of the urban area, and we thought, this seems low. Um, And it was kind of well known, and we were told by our advisors in Nigeria that the census data is is, is kind of manipulated, or at least is just totally, you know, you can't really rely on it. So we hired um, a population expert who uh, went around and did actual household surveys. So we walked around different parts of the city and he collected this kind of robust data set and then he extrapolated it based on the size of the city. So I'm not sure exactly what his, his methodology was, but apparently it was quite robust. And he estimated that the population was actually closer to 6 million. Wow. And he said, there's probably 2 million people just living in the city center <laughs> in the sort of historic core, which is this kind of uh, organic um, kind of informal settlement right at, right in the middle where the poorest residents live. And he said the, the whole urban area is, is probably about 6 million people and projected to get to, I think it was over 8 million uh, over, over the next number of years. I think that's a, quite a common theme in a lot of emerging cities because... A lot of the residents live on informal land. The government hasn't been able to absorb the population growth, but they don't want to acknowledge that these residents exist and live in these often um, squatter settlements or slums because then the people will be able to ask for extra or more rights. And the government often doesn't want to, to acknowledge these places until they're properly formalized with normal and high quality um, like yeah. basic civic infrastructures. The, the, the great irony of that is, I mean, my, my experience of walking around this sort of core area in Ibadan is that um, many of the buildings are very beautiful. They have this indigenous Nigerian and specific to Ibadan kind of architecture that still exists. Many of the buildings are very old. Some of them are kind of ramshackle, like, uh, as you said, sort of uh, kind of... Uh, informal kind of squatters places but many of them are old buildings that have been maintained and uh you know are used and indeed many of the the sort of street dimensions are very similar to our medieval cities in europe that we love and we celebrate and we preserve and and something that i I feel like i have to mention that many people don't maybe don't want to admit is what you could call the hangover of imperialism and what happened in Nigeria was that the um, 
much much like the British did in in many parts of the Middle East, was they they sort of picked an area based on you know the geographical features and sort of what they could claim and they just drew a boundary around it and said all this area is nigeria you're a country now but of course nigeria is full of uh, different languages different ethnic groups people with vastly different histories it would be like drawing a circle around all of europe and saying you're all one country you all have one identity people say absolutely not that's not correct at all so they've had to live with this really uh, kind of dual identity you have your sort of ethnic identity of your sort of um, your local area. And then you're sort of told you're Nigerian when that, that was just a term that was invented by these British colonialists. Um, so, you know, they have to deal with a lot of a lot of crap that they never wanted, <laughs> wanted to happen to them. You know, so I think that's really important to bear in mind with these the, many developing countries. They're dealing with this hangover of imperialism. Yeah. Just on one final note with uh, Ethiopia, Ethiopia was never colonized. It's one of the two of the 54 African countries that um, was never colonized. The Italians tried, but the Ethiopians fought them out. So they haven't felt this hangover um, and they haven't experienced it. So I think uh, there's a lot more trust of uh, foreigners coming in but they also have a lot more autonomy and uh, mm. culturally it's also led to, to them having a very rich culture. Nothing was ever lost. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating country and I can, I can talk about it for hours, but. Uh... <laughs> well, I definitely have to visit. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can move on and talk about some of your um, experience working in the Gulf. Uh, you obviously lived in Dubai until quite recently. Yeah. So what were some of the things you were working on there? Uh, yeah, good. I'm glad you call it the Gulf because uh, the Middle East is a very big region and uh, there's a lot of diversity within the Middle East. The Gulf is more focused on um, the oil-rich countries. And that was a very contrasting experience to Ethiopia. Uh, it was uh, quite a shock to the system because um, I flew directly from Ethiopia to Dubai for a job interview I had there. And I went from witnessing the harsh realities of life on a daily basis to opulence beyond belief um, and started working with a government that has a very ambitious vision um, and a very, uh, you could say, overly ambitious wish list sometimes. Um, and Dubai is very much a car-based society. It's... Yeah. A bit like with your work in Nigeria, Dubai is actually sort of two cities that coexist. You have the old city, uh, which is quite fascinating. There's a lot of remnants of the past. There's a big souk. It's very easy to, to walk around. And then you have the more modern areas that are purely car-based. In Dubai, I'm exaggerating slightly, but you're either in a car park or on a highway. Um, <laughs> and then basically the less affluent will live in the older parts of the city and the more affluence will live in the modern sky rise that you see when you google dubai um, and the whole city is dissected by this mega highway called sheikh zaid road i think it's got in some sections 12 lanes on either side and it's like a futurama city you just leave your home and just shoot down this super huge modern highway i think also as a green urbanist People might question 
it's a bit ironic to, to move to this part of the world for various reasons. But to that I say, um, climate change is not enclosed by political borders. All cities and all countries have a very important role to play in reducing their footprint. And I wanted to also work in this context where I'd be met with a lot more resistance when trying to promote certain ideas and ideologies. So there I joined a young smart mobility consultancy and we worked on smart and sustainable mobility projects. Most of our work was focused on leveraging technology to optimize the urban operations of Dubai and didn't focus so much on building new infrastructures. So we managed, for example, a traffic control center. We developed a big data platform. We developed a multimodal intelligent transport system strategy. So basically looked at types of technology we could uh, integrate between like the tram, the metro and the bus to create a, a smoother and more seamless experience of public transport. We also worked on a number of smart mobility projects like uh, the electric scooters, um, electric car sharing, and also looked at things like creating 3D smart city platforms and digital twins, um, which was essentially a project that built on our expertise in big data science and brought in a visualization component to enable both technical and non-technical workers or government officials to manage city operations in a, an easy to use user-friendly platform. But yeah, overall the focus was on optimization using technology. So using technology essentially to make better use of resources. Optimization is great, but if your underlying system or service is unsustainable, there's only small gains to be made. So in my, my personal opinion, Dubai made a rather poor decision early on by building this mega 12 lane highway on each side that dissects the city and still gets very congested in peak hours, um, which is a fine example of induced demand or build it and they will come. But yeah, in summary, uh, and this is my personal opinion, Dubai, yes, is a very smart city, but what we need is smart, smart cities. And by that, I mean, a smart city is a city that makes very smart decisions at the onset, at the planning phase. And that requires smart decision-making before any smart technology is even considered. Yeah. Cities a lot like uh, Singapore. And I'll be, I've, I've made a video on Singapore that I will release soon that talks about how they've created a truly smart, smart city. Okay, so, so how about um, technology in emerging cities in the developing world? Are we seeing any innovation happening there that we can learn from? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So having worked and traveled in many emerging cities, I have seen nice examples where they've sort of leapfrogged over some of the technologies that Europe and North America have been investing heavily in. Um, and I have a few examples off the top of my head. One of them is on traffic signal optimization. So a lot of listeners and the general public, they don't fully understand how modern traffic lights work, but basically built into the road, there's a thing called an inductive loop. And whenever a car drives over this, the loop knows that a vehicle is there waiting at an intersection. And it does the, the loop itself 
um, can go far back upstream into the intersection. So the, the traffic light will have an idea of how many cars are waiting. And if there's a lot of cars waiting on a certain arm, then they will be given a green wave. Um, traditionally, traffic lights work using fixed times. So you might have, you know, 30 seconds red, a couple seconds orange, 30 seconds green, but that doesn't necessarily optimize the, the flow of vehicles through a given junction. Um, so yes, in London, most of the traffic lights, they're actuated, so they're demand responsive to ensure a smooth flow of traffic throughout the city. And building these actuated traffic control systems costs cities millions, probably billions, because you have to dig up the road space, put in all this hard infrastructure, and it serves a great purpose in terms of optimizing the movement of vehicles. However, there's potentially alternative ways to do this, alternative technologies that are widely available and low cost that could reach similar outcomes. So I have been made aware of a project in Southeast Asia. I'm not going to mention the country, but uh, you can probably guess um, once I explain what they're doing. Instead of building infrastructure into the road, these inductive loops and control systems, they're just using CCTV cameras connected to um, 3G communication boxes. And the CCTV can count the vehicles automatically by plugging the feed into um, vehicle counting software. And using CCTV, you can fulfill the same function at a tiny fraction of the cost but at the same time you're also offering say surveillance which is good for safety and the potential for um, ANPR so automatic number plate recognition which you could later use for example to uh, bring in road vehicle charging um, so have a, an automated toll road a bit like uh, the what London has. Charge. Exactly. So you could do that all with one camera and one 3G um, connection unit and some software. And in this particular location, this seems to be working very well. It's a, it's a city dominated by motorbikes, hint. <laughs> and uh, the traditional loops that they use in say London are great for counting cars, but motorbikes are much smaller, much more flexible and loops wouldn't work so well um, because motorbikes don't abide to lane changing in the same way. So this solution is low cost and seems to be doing a better job in this particular part of the world. So I think that's super interesting and uh, I would like to see this implemented in other places. Some other examples, um, this is so not so much innovation, but uh, in Kigali in Rwanda, they have a, a great bus system that uses smart ticketing, um, a bit like the the Leap card in Dublin, the, what's it called in London now? The, the Oyster. The Oyster card, yeah. <laughs> so they have that. They also have uh, free Wi-Fi in their buses, which I think is great because it means if you take the bus, you can be productive with your time. You can send emails, you can do some work, which is not possible in a private car. So that makes the public mm. bus more competitive than it would be otherwise. Um, I won't dive into too many other examples. I think one funny example um, is uh, 
if you look up robot traffic lights in Kinshasa, in, in the Congo, they've created their own type of traffic light. And you have to see this through your own eyes. It's too hard to explain. But um, in a lot of emerging cities, you would have someone stand in the middle of an intersection with a flag telling cars where to go, when to go. And they've basically emulated this person into a robot that performs that function. Um, so anyone listening, please look it up. It's I'll, I'll share it on my Instagram and Twitter because it is fascinating. It's, and when we say robot, it's literally like a humanoid uh, metal like terminator that sits and he, he has sort of traffic lights on each hand the hands are outstretched and he has sort of green and red signals and the, the the head moves around and makes kind of makes eye contact it's very bizarre and one of the things in in the article i'll, I'll link one of the um the actual like traffic officers human ones said uh people seem to respond better to the robot and follow the rules given by the robot more than they would a, an actual human being uh which I think says a lot about our psychology somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. I think you've pointed to like, there's kind of two forms of innovation. There's, you can invent a new technology, which is maybe what they're doing in Dubai, where they're sort of pushing smart cities and internet of things. And then there's just using existing technology in a new way. And that's also very innovative. And that's sort of that uh, CCTV example you gave. Drawing from your global experiences and, and in the context of this uh, green urbanist mindset, creating green cities, uh, are there any discussions, practices or infrastructures you feel are being overlooked? Yeah, definitely. So some of the main things that, that really come to mind and that we've touched on several times over in our discussion is, well, one, every city has a unique DNA. And therefore, any project requires a unique solution, or at least it has to be very carefully integrated. So if bus rapid transit didn't work in Ho Chi Minh City or in Delhi in India, it's not necessarily because bus rapid transit was not a good solution. Rather, it might have been poorly adapted to the local conditions and small tweaks and changes and a better understanding of the local culture could have achieved completely different outcomes. Another point I'd like to bring up, and I think you also alluded to that, is we need to sometimes break away from the engineering mindset of continuously optimizing. And sometimes we need to revolutionize, think differently, think outside of the box. So say you're working with a city and you need to move 200,000 people in and out of the CBD every day. Your engineer might look at optimizing the traffic lights or altering the junction geometries. But maybe there's a space where you can revolutionize and try something different. And that could be introducing a bus rapid transit system or cycle paths or some sort of on-demand shuttle service. So before jumping to technologies that are used to optimize systems and services, take a step back and think, might there be an alternative way to do that? Um, and that touches on another point that, that has been occupying my mind more and more recently is on, on technology. Yes, advancements in technology are great and they're doing great things. And yes, technology can solve many problems 
but I do think it's important to be careful. Um, man by nature is a social animal. I think that's something Aristotle said. And at a more personal level, we need to create cities that physically bring people together and reconnect people with each other and nature. There's a, a great book called The Third Industrial Revolution by Jeremy Rifkin. And he talks about nature deficit disorder, which is a problem that seems to be happening in many urban areas, big concrete cities where the rise, there's been a crazy or huge rise in ADD and ADHD, um, all sorts of attention deficit disorders because we're not spending enough time with nature. And there could be other causes, maybe we're using social media and phones too much, but um, I think these are important lessons and things we should be looking into. And there is a space to bring in more green infrastructure to our cities. And urbanists, we have a very important role to play in, in reducing stress and anxiety in people and uh, allowing people to live more happy and, and healthy lives. So it's my philosophy and it's shared by many that we should focus on planning and designs that also enable us to, you know, serendipitously meet our neighbors and not build big suburban areas. In America, there's been a big trend of uh, the, the suburbia trend and they have what they call is snout houses. So you have your house and your garage next to your house and you can go from your house into your car without ever going outside, without spending time <laughs> on your front lawn and then you would drive to the city to work and back and you never have to interact with your neighbors. And that's sad if we don't spend time interacting with our local environment. So I would like to move forward and create cities that get people out of their cars, to create cities that have great sidewalks, that connect to great public spaces, um, not just like nice Instagrammable spaces that we can you know, drive to and take a cool photo but real spaces that encourage uh, real rich connections between humans and nature and yeah, create spaces that people can go to and also find solitude and disconnect for a while. Um, I do feel many cities and more so in the developed world, but I do see this trend in a lot of emerging cities that uh, we're bringing in too much stimulus. We're bombarding our, our public spaces with ads. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, if you ask me, if you give me the choice of going for coffee with you in a nice Italian public square or to Times Square in New York City, I will have to say the Italian public square. And I think most people <laughs> would agree um, because it's a space where you can, you know, feel at, at comfort um, with yourself and your environment. And we need all the above things I just mentioned to be more physically and mentally healthy, but most importantly, happy and excited about life. And when or if or when we achieve this, I think we'll, we'll value our existence much more and we'll better acknowledge the, the fragility of our planet. And once we're at peace with ourselves, we can start to live more harmoniously with with our environment and I guess create a built environment that is uh, more sustainable socially, economically, environmentally 
And yes, this sounds a bit fluffy, some of this, but in the context of climate change, at the end of the day, we really only have three choices. And these are mitigation. We mitigate and move away from the harm we're doing to the planet. We adapt, so we build walls to stop sea level rise, or we suffer. And I think these are the words of a guy called John Holdren. He says, we're likely to do some of each of these, but the more mitigation we do, the less adaptation we will need to do, and therefore the less suffering um, will be done. So I'm all for mitigating, avoiding climate change as best as possible. And there are many solutions to look to, some from the past and some from uh, innovation and technology. So from the present and the future. And then we adapt if we have to. But let's put our most of our eggs in the mitigation basket because I don't want to cause any more human suffering. I think that's very well said. And I don't think that's fluffy at all. I think that's actually the most pressing issue of our time. And we need to have people thinking in this way. Just coming back to, you know, uh, I've heard described before that uh, this, the, the, the sort of cities and towns that we live in are essentially a human zoo. Yeah, I like that. So we don't live in our natural environment anymore. Our, all of our ancestors spent the majority of our history on the African savanna. And it's only very, rec- in our, very recently in our, our sort of time on this planet that we've started, as you said, creating a built environment, constructing an environment that is detached from nature. And what it is, is, it, is it, it's a kind of facsimile of our natural environment that we would live in. Much the same that if you visit a zoo, they create a facsimile of a lion's uh, environment for them to live in. But it's never the same. And in fact, most cities are a very poor imitation um, of, of what we actually need from our habitat. As you said, lack of nature, um, a, a, an overstimulus of things that are not good for our minds, and a lack of meaningful connection. These are really basic things that we 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 generally don't get right, um, or we often don't get right in our cities. So I think that's a huge, huge thing to uh, to get out there and for people to think about. Do you have any any final thoughts for us before we leave? I've spoken a lot about uh, bus rapid transit, um, so on a, on a more humorous note, um, I always say uh, BRT the change you wish to see in the world. <laughs> that is some good planning humor right there (laughs) is uh is there anywhere online you would like uh, people to follow you yeah sure so i can be reached on the likes of instagram if you want to see some of my photograph photographic and videographic work find me on linkedin i'm i'm reasonably active there but thank you ross i i really enjoyed this discussion um, it was almost like a, a therapy session for me. <laughs> therapy for urbanists. Well, thank you so much for being on. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed this and uh, look forward to having you back on in a few months' time. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.